Good, so the pattern for the day that I'm planning is that we'll begin, first of all, by thinking in small groups about what we think we mean by the present moment at the moment, if you see what I mean. So we'll dig into it a bit and see where we're starting from. And then um, we'll turn to our guide for the day, Jean-Pierre de Cossard. I'll tell you a little bit about him if he's new to you. Ground, and then we'll look at begin to look at his thinking on the present moment, and um, we'll have lunch on, and then we'll continue in the afternoon. In the afternoon, we'll look in particular at what he has to say about suffering. So that'll be Jay, <laughs> and then we'll finish with meditation. But I think I said in the um, few words about the day that the present moment is a phrase that picked up quite broadly. I don't know whether you find that. I hear it quite a lot. Well, I'm, I'm going to stay in the present, or I'm good at being in the present. or. <laughs> but the way I hear it talked about quite often, it's not really quite what it means in our spiritual tradition. I think people sort of know that it's something good and will be helpful and will be a better way to live. But I think until it begins to be allied to some strong spiritual practice, our understanding of it can be a little bit distorted. So I've made a handout where I've um, um, picked out a quote from someone who I think displays some of those common misunderstandings and some quotes from, um, four, five quotes from 20 and 21st century writers that you can dig into in small groups that maybe give some other perspectives and, and help you to reflect on your own experience and your own understanding at the moment. And then we'll take that into going back to the 18th century with de Cossard and see what he has to say and where that takes us. So if you could pass those, we've got three rows. So I'd like to look at the jars Brandreth one. Um, yes, sure. Together. It's something I picked up in uh, a newspaper, I think it might have been the Evening Standard, uh, interview with him a few, few weeks ago, and it struck me when I read it. So he says, I've always been very good at living in the moment and blanking out the negatives. I remember years ago, I had something wrong with me, and the surgeon said, don't tell anyone about it, because if you don't tell people, they won't talk about it, so you won't talk about it, and eventually you'll forget it ever happened. Of course, there have been terrible things. One of my grandchildren spent a year in Great Ormond Street Hospital having a childhood cancer treated. Fortunately, this story has a happy ending. Touch wood, the treatment was successful. That was a terrible worry. But in general, I feel I have an obligation to be jolly. If you've had all the gifts I've had and you can't be jolly, Things have reached a perilous state. If I can't be jolly, who can? Well, you know, good question. Count your blessings, and if you can't be jolly, <laughs> when you've had so little to complain about, <laughs> you probably ought to be jolly. But I think the fruits of 
our meditation practice and our spiritual practice and the way the spiritual writers speak to us is not about jolliness under all circumstances, but about love and joy and peace. And I think that's different than always being the jolly person and feeling you have an obligation to be jolly. I am the jolly one among us. I've always been very good at living in the moment and blanking out the negatives. I hear that quite a lot. I'm blanking out the negatives. I'm using my will to ignore them as though they don't exist. Once here, actually, we, uh, I was leading an um, introductory meditation course, and I remember it's the only time it ever happened afterwards. Most people report distraction, amongst other things. And one person said he'd had no distractions, whatever. And I didn't believe him. I mean, I, I believed that he hadn't had any, <laughs> but I believed he wasn't meditating, that he was using his will to blank out He was denying something in himself. And that's different, isn't it? That's keeping something suppressed and hidden that you can't bear to look at, which keeps us less than fully, less than joyful, actually. That actually denies our joyfulness, because there's a part of us we can't bring, we can't live out of. So I think our friend that we're coming on to would um, raise a big question mark about the notion of living in the moment, being blanking out the negatives. Often I hear people say, well, I live in the moment, which usually means, well, I'm going to enjoy myself come what may. And the come what may is often at the expense of other people. They're not in the picture. I've got to live in this moment, which is what I have decided to do. So it's got a little bit of myopia about it. Then there's this problem of suffering. I remember years ago I had something wrong with me. Sounds like something a little more than just a, a simple thing. <laughs> so I just said, don't tell anyone about it. Because if you don't tell people, they won't talk about it. So you won't talk about it, and eventually you'll forget it. Well, there's some wisdom in that, isn't there? Because you can talk and talk and talk and dig yourself into further and further misery. <laughs> but if you don't talk about it, where is your support? Does no one else want to love you through this? Is it about just having it done and then forgetting it? Or is there some different way of being with our suffering that helps us to grow out of it, not just ignore it as much as possible, leave it behind in one sense, and pretend it never happened? I'm raising some questions here. And then this more terrible thing, a grandchild having childhood cancer treated. Fortunately, this story has a happy ending. What if it doesn't? 
was a terrible worry. So there's a great deal of room for worry. Takes you out of the present moment I, I'm hearing in him. As indeed it does. And the obligation to be jolly. So, some thoughts about that. <clears throat> Let me read to you before I ask you to go into groups and look at them yourself. Uh, the next five, the five quotes, which I have picked out as perspectives on this deeper sense of the present moment that we're going to explore. Bede Griffiths is a Benedictine monk who spent the last half of his life in India. So the context for the quotation, it was Bede's habit to take a walk in the forest adjacent to the ashram each morning. Andrew Harvey, an American spiritual writer, asked him what he thought about on his walks. And Bede replied, I don't think, dear boy, he had quite a cut glass Oxford English accent, I don't think, dear boy, I try to become one with the air and water and earth and with my breathing, and I try and revel in the seamless dance my body and mind are doing with the world around me. Sometimes when I'm really awake, I really see that the trees are angels. Etty Hillesum is a um, young Dutch woman, born in 1914, died in 1943, of Jewish extraction, died in Auschwitz. And her diaries at times when the, the ghetto was being constructed in Amsterdam, sent to the transit camp on the way to the death camps. Um, so that's the context of her diaries. So here she said, thinking gets you nowhere. It may be a fine and noble aid in academic studies, but you can't think your way out of emotional difficulties, which is what she's focusing on just now. That takes something altogether different. You have to make yourself passive then and just listen. Re-establish contact with a slice of eternity. The next one is Malcolm Mugridge. Some of you will perhaps re remember him. He was famous for making the film about Mother Teresa called Something Beautiful for God. I would not call him a great mystic, but I thought this is an interesting insight. <laughs> Every happening, great and small, is a parable whereby God speaks to us. And the art of life is to get the message. Benignus O'Rourke, contemporary Augustinian friar who writes on contemplative prayer. Being in the present freed from all the baggage we carry around, is one of the fruits of sitting still, of praying this way. It helps us to be wiser about life, more compassionate, more alert to what needs to be done. We are freed from the muddle in our minds. To live in the present is to be guided by the Holy Spirit. When we reach that moment, we are free, carefree, like the birds of the air, like the lilies of the field. Such outcomes are wonderful. Yet we cannot strive for them 
or make them happen. All we can do is prepare a way for the Lord and leave ourselves in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And finally, Etty. My red and yellow roses are now fully open. While I sat there working in that hell, they quietly went blossoming. Many say, how can you still think of flowers? Last night, walking that long way home through the rain with the blister on my foot, I still made a short detour to seek out a flower stall and went home with a large bunch of roses. They are just as real as all the misery I witness each day. So they don't necessarily use the phrase present moment, but I think their perspectives on it. So why don't you um, gather together in threes or fours, just you know, move your chairs and, and just dig into those quotes. See what strikes you and what, what chimes in with your own experience or Rosie's questions or affirms things. So just dig into it for a while and see how you get to. So just find a three or four around you and then move your chairs together. So just um, no, notice, read them again if you want to, what in those five quotations strikes you in particular that makes you think, ah, or is it of interest to you and maybe chimes in with your own experience. So we try to... To, to dig into our own experience of what we think the present moment is, what it is to live in the present moment and be inspired and maybe influenced by the quotes on the page there. Is that okay? So read them, someone could read them out loud again if you want to, to give you an opportunity to hear them and notice what, if you haven't. Or whichever, yeah. Yeah, might be a good idea certainly to look at them again because so you, you've only heard them once so that you can see what seems to strike you. Hmm. Good. So are there, is there anything from um, that, any insight or thought or that you'd like to share with everybody else? <laughs> it's also tricky when you've been in a group and someone like me says, would you like to share anything with the rest of them? <laughs> but maybe there is. Surrender seems to be a key word there. Ah, and it's a really big thing. Okay. Sounds quite innocent being in the present moment, doesn't it? <laughs> so you're beginning to think that it's sometimes a big thing to do. That we resist it? No. We don't resist it. It just seems to come. Ah. Ah. The wish to Ah, okay, so it's nothing to do with your own will. You've arrived at the point where it, it sort of happens. Yeah. 
accept, accept. So it's acceptance and surrender. That, that, that's a word that is allied with acceptance. Okay, so may, maybe there's a sense of eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. So it could be quite selfish at that level. Okay, so there's a, a, dis a distinction between trying to think your way out of something or through something, especially if it's emotional difficult. You know, I will do this differently next time. <laughs> and <laughs> this will solve it. <laughs> the out of your own will and reasoning power. Yes, hold, hold on, and we'll come, we'll come to that. But there's something different then about the ability to not dig in in that sort of way with the thinking mind, but when the time is right, which I think was a very key phrase in what you said, when the time is right, when it seems given to you for some quiet reflection, which allows something else into it. Ah, so it takes away management and control. So that's your control point. Takes away management, that's a lovely phrase, and trying to control it. Okay, so there's that word waiting. <laughs> Seems to be part of it as well. <laughs> Not in our own time. It's re-establishing with the slice of... How did you describe it? Re-establish contact with the slice of eternity, or as John Main puts it, The second step of meditation, the first is to become attentive, mindful. The second is the realization that God is. That connecting with the source of being, which reveals something else, or brings something else to us. I think you, you mentioned a gift, did you? Okay, so it's a waiting to be given something. Okay, a sort of a sort of deep receptiveness. Ah, listening with the heart rather than with the mind. Awaiting. Hmm. Abiding. Yep, so openness to God. So we're bringing in some marvelous insights and some language that somehow seems to begin to capture some of this, what this is really about, or not about. Yeah, so the need, so the need in contrast with the first one, which seemed to have a lot of activity a need for a certain passivity. How many of you are? Uh, how many of you are familiar with the name Jean-Pierre de Cossard? How many of you are familiar with Jean-Pierre de Cossard? Okay, one or two. Yep. He's not very well known yet. <laughs> We're working on it. <laughs> I came across him in a, a little uh, edition called The Sacrament of the Present Moment um, with an introduction by the wife of Malcolm Muggeridge, as it helps, Kitty Muggeridge. I, 
Um, but I, I now have a fuller edition, and this is the one I have. It happens to be called Abandonment to Divine Providence, and it includes a treatise written by him called, well, I'll talk about that. Maybe it's, it can be called different things. He didn't name it himself. He didn't give it a title himself, so it's differently titled. And letters, spiritual, letters of spiritual guidance between him and uh, some French nuns of the visitation. So a treatise and some letters of spiritual guidance are what we have. And that's my edition. There are other editions there. So you've only got to read one book. <laughs> so who is he? Who's heard of Brother Lawrence? Yeah, more of you will have heard of Brother Lawrence. Yeah. Um, who is writing very much about the same thing. So Brother Lawrence was a lay Carmelite brother, French, who wrote a very small little book called The Practice of the Present Moment. No, The Practice of the Presence of God. Sorry, let's get it right. The Practice of the, um, the Presence of God. And he died in 1691. Jean-Pierre de Cossard lived from 1675 to 1751. So you can locate him in your historical perspective. So mainly 18th century. We don't know an awful lot about him, but I'll give you a little bit of uh, background. So he was born in Toulouse, and he entered the Jesuit novitiate in, at the age of 18. So he went straight into the religious life. And he was obviously uh, uh, very, he was brainy, let's say. He became a, a teacher at the Jesuit college in Toulouse, so that indicates the sort of trajectory that, you know, the gifts that people saw in him. And um, he was a good preacher, so he was given various preaching and missionary posts. In 1729, so that's when he was 54, he became the spiritual guide to the nuns of the, the nuns of the visitation in Nancy, in France. So he would have given talks, he would have preached, and he would have seen them one to one. And then apparently he said some. Um, indiscreet words, whatever that might mean, <laughs> and got sent away. <laughs> but they can't have been too bad, because after two years, he, he was restored and came back. <laughs> it's always very tempting, isn't it? It is for me, anyway, to think, what were these indiscreet words? But of course, we don't know, and we never are going to know. So <laughs> if you're like me with this, oh, this curious mind, you'll just have to put it on one side. <laughs> Um, and then in 1740, he was sent back to Toulouse to be the rector of a Jesuit college at Perpignan and then at Albi. Not something that was suited to him, he thought. He was not an administrator. He didn't like being nice to important people. He, he liked solitude and, and dealing with admin and problems. So that was not something that he looked forward to, but we might have a look at how he approached being given the job. He was under obedience. He had to go. How he approached that, feeling that it was going to be disastrous initially. 
quite unsuited to him and where he felt his life and his spiritual life was taking him. And then he ended his life as uh, the seminary spiritual director in Toulouse, and he died having become blind at the age of 76. So that's a, a rough outline of his life. He did write a rather, I'm told, a rather dry and not particularly edifying treatise earlier in his career, <clears throat> which was published under just under the name of a um, Indignation Father. He did, he, it wasn't, he didn't. It's quite common not to put your own name if you were in religious life. Um, maybe fortunately, it got attributed to somebody else. <laughs> but I've never seen that. It's it's rather died a death. I don't think there's the horrible word because oh, he's written this in. <laughs> well, there you are. <laughs> That's an interesting thought. <laughs> But I think where his, his ministry and his life and his spirituality comes to the fore is in spiritual guidance. And so it's this time with the nuns of the visitation that I think were, were perhaps the most fruitful. And that's where we get his mature writing from. So he won't be the only person who we say, okay, the... the um, Treatise the Sacrament of the Present Moment by Jean-Pierre de Cossard, but he didn't actually write it himself um, any more than Eckhart wrote his German sermons down himself. He didn't. He gave them as talks, and the nuns would make notes, probably copious notes from them. And because they valued them so highly, they collected them together and wrote them up. and began to circulate them among, their, among other sisters, other convents. And this is quite a common pattern. We live in a very literal age, so the idea, you know, when I say to you, he did not write this with his own pen, these are not the exact words that he wrote down, could sometimes jolt us a bit. But that's because of our modern mindset. Really, the important thing, isn't it, is, is the core of what's being said, not necessarily the words were written word for word by this particular person. It's clearly his thought. And uh, in a way, it's, it's, it's his thought as it inspired other people, which is the point of it, isn't it? How has this inspired other people? So those notes... Um, were circulated and eventually uh, were published. They were gathered together um, in, I can't remember, I got it here, in 1861. So 110 years later, they were finally edited and published in book form. So they were in circulation for 110 years before they were finally published. And, and there are various editions available the publishing history is a bit complicated, I think. So what do we know about him as a person? Someone said of him, the style of the writing is the person. Tender, sympathetic, humorous. He's subtle, logical, humble, 
but sure, straight, forceful and firm, yet gently persuasive and always encouraging and patient. I think I might have liked him. <laughs> that mix of knowing what he's about and being firm about it, because I don't suppose everyone agreed with him, yet being encouraging, humane, patient, persuasive, with a fine mind. Dom Chapman, there was a day here not long ago about Dom, John, are you nodding? Uh, John Chapman, Benedictine monk, 20th century, who said, I have found no writer so helpful to myself. He speaks from experience and from the heart. His words are lighted up with a magic splendor by his enthusiasm and zeal. So he's really saying, isn't he, that for him, um, what he's writing from is real in his experience. It's not just from his study. It's what he's tried to live. And that's where he's speaking from. And, be and because it's so real and live for him, and that comes through the pages, it, it's an inspiration to John Chapman. His um, particular influences were Francis de Sales, who we know in particular for his book, The Introduction to the Devout Life, which was written for lay people rather than for nuns. A lot of our writings of the mystics are written for people in religious orders, but de Sales wrote for lay people. Don of the Cross was another influence in St. Augustine. So he's rooted, well-rooted in the tradition in the Christian tradition, and particularly by his predecessor, Francis de Sales, who lived from 1567 to 1622. So, as he didn't write it down himself, the treatise, then people had to provide a title for it. So the titles that people have chosen for the various editions, I think, are interesting reflections on, on what, they have, what they have found to be the core of it. So the edition I have is called Abandonment to Divine Providence. Sometimes it's translated as self-abandonment to divine providence. I don't know how you respond to that title. I think the word abandonment sometimes has negative connotations for us. If our life experience particularly has had abandon, abandonment in it, you know, we say, oh, I was abandoned, you know, I was left alone. Um, but there is another meaning of abandonment, I think, which we can recognize, which is that sort of freedom. <laughs> I'm abandoning myself, you know, to the waves or to the, to the winds or, you know, I think that the French has more of that in it than we tend to have in the English. So that sense of a free surrender. <laughs> Because you can trust it. <laughs> you can let go <laughs> into it. You know it will not let you down. So there's a great freedom in that sense of, the, of divine providence. Providence, the, the thing that, what provides for you in a simple sense. 
God the great provider. Or maybe the title, The Sacrament of the Present Moment, which we've chosen as the title for the day. We'll come back to that. Someone else uses the title, The Joy of Full Surrender. The Joy of Full Surrender. So that's putting something very positive, isn't it? This, that this is a way to joy, this surrender. Or life in God's now, someone else called it. Life in God's now. God who is always present, if only we are. Or the sacrament of the present moment. We'll come on to that. What does he mean by the sacrament of the present moment? Is it, what is this notion of a sacrament? The word we use, sacrament, comes from a Latin word, sacramentum, which is a translation of the Greek, Mysterion, from which we get the word mystery, mystic mysticism. And the root of that is a sense of something that we can't see, something that's hidden from our eyes, or used then metaphorically. It's not that it's not there, it's just that we can't see it. Go into your secret place and the Lord who sees in secret in the heart we get in Matthew talking about prayer no one has ever seen God not because God's not there but we can't see God God is spirit all these things that come to us from scripture trying to say something about the mystery we say of God. It's what we mean by mystery. It's not that it's a puzzle. It's just that we can't see it with our normal senses and our normal reasoning faculties, ultimately. But that mystery is continually self-revealing if we've learned how to see <laughs> or to be receptive or listen or We've only got the language of our senses and our mind to try and point to this realm of unknownness. So we talk about you know, listening with the ear of the heart or seeing with the eye of the heart to try and say we're not talking about the physical eyes, but we have this capacity within us to be receptive to this unseen mystery. So that's this sense of mysterium, which gets translated as sacramentum in Latin, from which we get the notion of sacraments. So if you're a churchgoer, and maybe on a Sunday you go and receive the sacrament. So the bread and the wine are outward, external, visible things. But through them we enter into the invisible the body and blood of Christ. Okay? So he's trying to say that the present moment is also sacramental in that sense. 
that every moment can, if we become, as we become increasingly able to see it, <laughs> reveals to us God. Every moment. Ultimately and potentially. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know where you are, but <laughs> I think it's a lifelong journey and beyond that. And I think it's really important to keep remembering that. Because when you read someone like De Cossart, who's been trying to live this all his life and he's advising other people, it's very tempting to think, I could be there now, if only I could do it. Okay, then we switch on ourselves out of the present moment. And he's not talking about that. So maybe I'll remind you that from time to time. We can only be where we are. Because if we weren't, we will not be in the present moment. <laughs> we'll be somewhere else where we want to be, or think we ought to be, or could be, or he's told us we could be. <laughs> and as Kate beautifully said, she couldn't be Liz. And I thought, hooray, Kate can only be Kate. <laughs> Liz can only be Liz, and Dawn can be Dawn. <laughs> okay? I'd be dreadful if I was trying to be like Pam. <laughs> and Pam would be dreadful if she was trying to be like you because she's not meant to be. Okay, so all of this is wrapped up in it. <laughs> You're not trying to make yourself like someone else. <laughs> it's just that we do that. <laughs> so every moment is a sacrament. It's a moment which may reveal God to us. It has the potential to reveal God to us. So he says, um, oh, this was a little quote I came across yesterday. Every moment of our lives is a sort of communion with divine love. Every moment of our lives, every moment of our lives is a sort of communion with divine love. So love's an important theme. This is Jean-Pierre de Cossart. So everything I use now is, 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 is going to be him. We're now focusing on him. Okay, yeah, good question. I think that's totally amazing. <laughs> So he says, and so we have only to welcome divine eternity in the passing shadows of time. So time, every moment which is passing, is a way that we can see God, but it in a sort of shadowy way. Shadows that change. Life, things in life come and go. Thoughts come and go. Emotions come and go. Events come and go. States of happiness come and go. Pain comes and goes. Our duties come and go. Change. Okay? Shadows that change, though the eternity they hide is changeless. 
so the divine love is always there. Okay, but we don't see it to start with because we're caught up in the changes of, that happen in time. We shadows. We think to start with that what's happening in time is reality. Is all there is. But gradually we begin to realize that that's not all there is. That there is an eternal dimension, a, a, a change of love, which is always there for us. And maybe we increasingly realize that that's more real. And the changes and, and chances of life, and prayer comes to mind, the changes and chances of life are that. They're coming and going underneath is this unchanging reality which we have the capacity to become more receptive to and open to some of those words we had earlier on. The discovery of divine action in everything that happens, each moment, is the most subtle wisdom possible regarding the ways of God in this life. He's a Jesuit. One of Ignatius's uh, ways of understanding was that it's possible to, to come to see God in all things. And he's talking about ordinary things. Anything, everything. Not just the things you do in church or if you're a nun, you know, in chapel, or, but the whole of life. It's a big, it's a big vision. That God is in the whole of life. The divine love. Because many things that happen, and we'll think about this this afternoon, don't look like gifts of love on the surface. He says it's a continual revelation, a self revelation of God. And an ever-renewed communion with him. So an ever-renewed, <laughs> because we keep dropping out. <laughs> so it's always, it's a bit like meditation, isn't it? You keep dropping out. <laughs> so you have to keep on coming back. That's how it is. <laughs> you just have to keep on coming back. Sometimes you don't want to. You don't. Sometimes you don't even get around to sitting down. <laughs> you don't want to. What's the, why should I persevere with 
There are much more interesting things to do in my day. Ever, ever renewed communion with him. It is joy in the beloved. The one thing necessary. Not in secrecy or stealth behind closed doors or in a drunken stupor. I wonder what he's referring to there. It is, a, it is joy in the beloved, not in secrecy or stealth behind closed doors or in drunken stupor. <laughs> Other ways to find joy. Uh, very real. Yeah, exactly. But he's saying this is what we do. <laughs> we look for other consolations. <laughs> I'm sure there's, there's more context there, but you know we can begin to get. But openly in public, without fear of anyone or anything, without fear of anyone, what they might say or think. It is a fount of peace, joy, and love. It of contentment in God, of contentment in every moment, of course he means, whatever it is. Hmm. <laughs> Seen, known, experienced, and perfecting all that happens at every moment. It is a miraculous, Everlasting revelation and rejoicing. Though in itself there is nothing noticeably miraculous about it. So he's really saying it's not about observing amazing miracles from time to time. It's just ordinary life. The whole of life is a miracle when we begin to find this communion of love in every moment. Life doesn't go the way we expected it to. <laughs> it goes better. Perhaps some of you already know that. <laughs> it starts in very ordinary ways, perhaps. Perhaps you start to persevere with meditation because your day goes better if, you'd med if you start with meditation. You don't know how that works. You just know it does. So maybe that's how we begin to notice. Ah, if I make, sit and make that connection as well as I can in the morning, somehow it seems to, I don't know, it just seems to get into the day. Starting off away in connection with God. Yeah. And somehow it carries on for a while. Oh, I, I lead a meditation group in the city, and someone said that uh, now if he starts his day and it's going AWOL, he used to try harder <laughs> and therefore get more stressed because he was trying so hard, and now 
he's able to do this. He takes himself off to city church just next to him and he goes to meditate. Then he starts again. How wise. <laughs> he makes that reconnection, that divine communion. He resets himself. It's like rebooting the computer, I thought, as he was describing it. Yes. So there are lots of sort of contemporary <laughs> images we can use. We think, oh, it's like that. <laughs> and it's great to find those because, you know, the 18th century has only got 18th century images. So when you've got images from your own life, that helps, doesn't it? You think, oh, yeah, it's like that. <laughs> so that's what he thinks it's about. And he says the whole creation cannot fill the human heart. Stuff, time, worldly stuff, time and space. What happens in time and space is not enough to satisfy us. How do we know that? For the human heart is greater than all that is not God. Julian of Norwich says, only God can satisfy the human heart. Nothing else can. Because the human heart is so big, as big as God. And by heart, he means our whole being, the essence of ourself. He doesn't mean our emotions, but the essence of ourself, our wholeness. He says the heart is on a higher plane than the material creation. And for this reason, nothing material can satisfy it. The divine will, obviously as distinct from our own, the divine will is a deep abyss of which the present moment is the entrance. Like a door into this abyss. The abyss is a very positive thing in his thinking. This limitless space, place. If you plunge into this abyss, you will find it infinitely more vast than your desires. That sense of the possibility of being, finding this deep, deep satisfaction which is more than we could imagine is possible. That sense. And the present moment is the way through to, we have the present moment. And if we are able to be present to it, it can open <laughs> this door into the abyss of God. So he uses a number of images. This is one that I find particularly helpful. It is like the rights... Oh, you need to think about tapestries. It's the images of a tapestry, which we look at from the front. But when you work a tapestry, you work it from the back, which I personally have always found extraordinary. Because <laughs> if I'm doing something, I want to see what I'm creating from the front. It seems to me easier. But they did it from the back. 
okay. So they cannot see what they're making, ex except by constantly running around and having a look. <laughs> so you need to sort of grasp that, otherwise the image won't make sense. It is like the right side of a beautiful tapestry being worked by stitch on the reverse side. Neither the stitches nor the needle are visible on the right side, but one by one, those stitches make a magnificent pattern that only becomes apparent when the work is completed and the right side exposed to the light of day. Although while it is in progress, there is no sign of its beauty and wonder. So if you're working from the back, maybe there are a group of you putting in your, you know, a black, maybe you're doing the black stitches over there, dotted around, and someone else is doing the red ones, and <laughs> you've no idea what's happening on the other side. You're just doing what you're doing. You're doing the black stitches according to the pattern, and someone else is doing the red ones, and someone else is doing the yellow ones. doesn't look very beautiful if you're just putting black stitches in randomly. <laughs> but when it's finished and you go round, there is this amazing thing. The same applies to self-surrendered souls who see only God and their duty. The black stitch that, you should, that you're putting there just now, the black stitch that you then put there, the red switch, stitch that you then move on to over there, self-surrendered souls who see only God and their duty. Duty being what you are, your sense of what you, you, you are doing at the moment, not duty in a heavy sense. The accomplishment of each duty is at each moment one imperceptible stitch added to the tapestry. And yet it is with these stitches that God performs wonders of which one occasionally has a presentiment at the time, but will, which will not be fully known until the great day of judgment. So sometimes you know that what you're doing is worth it. Glorious moments of encouragement. And at other times, you just have to do it. <laughs> because not being God, you can't see the other side of the tapestry. But occasionally we get glimpses of it, that, there is, that what we're doing does have meaning. The last image on this, and then we're going to look at um, some other aspects. The face of the Lord, so when we see the Lord... <laughs> is like a border of sweetly smelling flowers. I've got in my mind a herbaceous border. I've just been to Kew Gardens last week with extraordinary herbaceous border, so I've got a, a very definite herbaceous border in my mind. I'm not sure they were all sweetly smelling. That would be even better. Divine action is the gardener who arranges the plants so expertly that the border is unlike any other. That's really interesting, isn't it? So it's not about conformity. 
among all, among all the flowers, there is not one alike. This is the uniqueness of each one of us. I've got the marvelous advantage of sitting here seeing all of you. <laughs> and you're all so gloriously different, let me tell you. <laughs> It's absolutely marvellous. Among all the flowers, there is not one alike, except in their common surrender to the hand of the gardener, leaving him complete mastery over them to do what he likes. I always begin to feel a bit tricky here. <laughs> Content for their part to do what is their nature and state to do. What is their nature and state to do? Who are you? What is your nature? Yeah, I was just thinking that. I don't, who, who, I didn't put that there. Who am I? Another question that unfolds. And their state. What is your state of life? Are you a religious sister? Are you a husband? Do you watch your profession? What are your responsibilities in life? I don't know. You do. Whatever your state of life is. You don't have to become something different than you are. Different in yourself, in your nature, or in your state in life unless you're called to it. If you're called, if you're sensitive, you're called to a different state of life, then of course you follow it. But it's not yours to decide. I would be better if I was doing something else. <laughs> Your own will. The restless mind, the restless desire. Life would be better if I went somewhere else. spiritual director I once came across said, well, you don't feel, <laughs> you know, that's a pointless line of thinking. If you're not drawn somewhere else, then you've obviously got to stay where you are. <laughs> Even if you don't like it too much at the moment, that's the waiting. Yes, absolutely. That's what yeah. Yes, that's all you can do. That was John Chapman. That was John Chapman. Yes, indeed, that's right, John Chapman. Pray as you can and not as you can't. It's not, it's not. Right, yep, yep. Because we want to be something different or someone different or in a different state. And until we're called somewhere else, then we should. We stay where we are. We enter into the present moment. So all of these things are, you know, little outworkings or different ways of expressing these things in particular contexts. Let God's will be done. That is the whole of Scripture, the universal law. So he says, if you want to sum the whole thing up, let God's will be done. The fiat, that's the Latin, let it be done, of Mary. 
let it be done unto me according to your will. Do you remember that from the Annunciation? When the angel comes and tells her something completely ridiculous <laughs> and impossible. And she's scared. Who wouldn't be? And when she stopped being scared, or maybe while she's still scared, she says, okay, I will. And one of the points that the Cosard makes again and again is that Mary lived a very unexceptional, unexceptional, sorry, an unexceptional life after. She didn't produce any miracles after Jesus. <laughs> we don't hear her doing anything particularly amazing. She just lives her ordinary, everyday life. She's content with her nature and her state, doing what she's drawn to do. But he's suggesting that she is an exemplar, really, of this, this continual fiat. Okay, let it be. Let your will be done. And then, of course, Jesus. Not my will, but thy will be done. In the end, after a struggle. So let's not suppose this is always going to be an easy path without struggles. Fiat, let, let thy will be done. So when it comes to the scriptures, he says, be careful how you read them. He says, you can read them without engaging with them. You can read them, you can study them as though they were stories about things that happened in the past. And then he says, it's a dead letter. Nothing happens. There's no inspiration in them. There's nothing in them that changes you. You've got to read with the heart. As though that inspiration, the spirit, is still alive in the scriptures. he says, don't think that your spiritual life is about copying Jesus or copying anyone. It isn't about copying anybody, being like someone else, inspired by them, but not copying them. He says, because the life of Jesus is in you. How can you copy it as though it was out there? It's in you by virtue of the Spirit dwelling in your heart. I mean, he's obviously pulling against some of the spirituality of, t of his time, which I'll mention in a minute, after lunch by the look of it. He says, we imagine that miracles are over and that all we can do now is to copy your works of old and repeat your ancient words. 
So, you know, God's done everything in the past, and all we can do is parrot it. We do not see that your continuing operation is an everlasting source of fresh ideas, fresh suffering and action of new prophets and patriarchs. That this is, keeps on going on. This is the way God is in the world. God hasn't stopped being there. And he says the sequel to the New Testament is being written now. By action and suffering, saintly souls are in the succession of the prophets and the apostles, not by writing canonical books, but by continuing the history of the divine purpose with their lives, whose moments are so many syllables and sentences through which it is visibly expressed. Who inspires you now? You probably are inspiring other people a lot of the time without knowing it. <laughs> the books the Holy Spirit is writing are living, and every soul, a volume in which the divine author makes a true revelation of his word. So we become revelations of the word. We can't not be. in this way of thinking, can we? Absolutely. The books the Holy Spirit are writing, books in inverted commas really, are living, and every soul a volume. So we're living books, which may get written down. Someone, some, you know, some, some, one day someone might, might uh, write about Joe. <laughs> but in the meantime, it's being lived. The books the Holy Spirit is writing are living and every soul a volume in which the divine author makes a true revelation of his word. Explaining it to every heart unfolding it in every moment. So the possibility of this understanding is there for all of us. Okay? And maybe what the, one of the things that the scripture does for us is, is to help us to see, actually, yeah, we're on the right course because that's how, yeah, I can see that there. So... <laughs> So often it becomes an affirmation of what's going on in us rather than a copying of what we've read. We think, oh yeah, that, that's right, because that's what happened to the prophets. Or that's right, that's what happened to, oh goodness me, that's what happened there. Maybe that rings some bells with some of you. The way scripture comes to you begins to change. It begins to be live in you and you begin to see, yes, it is the same sort of life that the Spirit is bringing to me as was brought to those characters in those stories. So just before lunch, let me put in a little bit of background to something of what he might be referring to there. He talks about the 
the prophets and Mary and Jesus. And he says they were simple souls. They weren't learned. They didn't even live in monasteries. They were living their everyday lives. They didn't have learned spiritual directors. They didn't have intermediaries. They were living in a more direct way, perhaps you might say. And I think he's stressing that because in the time that he was living, 1675 to 1751, it had the Reformation and the divide between Roman, well, the, the Eastern Orthodox, sorry, the Western and the Eastern Orthodox Church and uh, Protestantism, which was at one level an argument about is it works that brings salvation or is it grace? Is it your own will and your own willpower and your own doing things or is it the work of the Holy Spirit in you? Other things involved, but I think it's one of those themes in the spiritual life that's being played out again and again through the centuries. Which is it? You know, can you pay for forgiveness with indulgences? Or is that ridiculous? <laughs> Those sorts of questions. What's necessary for salvation? So the Reformation um, came and wanted to be mo much more on the side of grace. And the reaction in the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent um, was to reconsider the Catholic, the Roman Catholic position. And out of that came um, a spirituality which could be um, a sort of a very a tidied up and ordered spirituality with stages. So at this stage you do this, and then when you've done that you move on to the next stage, which, which has certain obligations and certain sorts of prayers. Um, and then you move on to the next stage. So, so there was a very much um, a laid out way of doing things. And of course, we, we, it's not that we don't need order, <laughs> we don't need guidance, but I think when that's pushed to extremes, so you, you always need the priest's intermediary and confessor, and without that you can't do anything. So you can see at one extreme, it gets very uh, tight and can become inhuman and can actually become an impediment to the real life of the spirit within. It doesn't have to, but it can do. And I think that's what he was reacting to. And there was a reaction to all of that. There always has been, I think, through Christian history. There are always reactions when things get extreme in the other direction. Um, what's called the quietest controversy, but, but it's, it's, it's the, the impulse that says it's the opposite. You don't have to do all of that. All you have to do is make yourself open to God, be passive, and nothing else matters. And so um, de Cossard is trying to shift out of that rigid spirituality into something which is much more direct and live and catching up the whole person and responding uh, through grace and faith to the will of God. Which is why he's stressing the simplicity of the souls and the practices of 
Mary, the prophets. He's saying, maybe we don't need this, um, this heaviness. Maybe there is much more direct interaction between the human being and God and the spirit of Jesus in us than we're allowing for. So that's a little bit of context for you. So he's not saying that we don't need anything else. He's trying to carve out a much more, a freer, more direct, and I think more humane, um, encouraging way to go about it. And to counter some of the, 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 uh, the errors, I suppose, uh, in, in that rigid way of thinking that, you know, you've got to copy Jesus. That's the New Testament and everything's finished. Don't think that we are continuing that. Although the, it, that's all there in our Christian tradition, in the desert fathers and mothers in the, in the fourth century. They, the younger monks, always felt that the, the, the wise, older monk in the desert was really like a fifth book of the gospel. You could see the gospel in their lives. But this is a, a perfectly normal part of our, you know, healthy part of our Christian tradition that sometimes gets very overlooked. And so he's wanting to bring it out again. So says Jean-Pierre de Cossard, what is the secret of how to find this treasure, this minute grain of mustard seed? There is none. It is available to us always, everywhere. Which, of course, is true. And it's always worth remembering that. Especially when we're busy striving and struggling. It's always there, and that ability to come back and reconnect, as we've just done for a few minutes, can really, really help. Till it becomes a little bit more consistent as a way or something we live from. But in the meantime, we just have to keep coming back to it, don't we? Come. We come back to our meditation practice twice a day. And maybe during the day we find we can come back to it. Maybe our word brings us back, or maybe we have some other way of recalling ourselves when we've gone off somewhere, especially when we've gone off on one, we say. <laughs> that really, really helps. But there are paths, there are practices, there are spiritual practices that help us. And he says, there are many paths. Only one is yours. It's a bit of a theme, isn't it? You have to find your way. It may be exactly the same as somebody else's, but it'll never be exactly the same. And there are traditions that we may feel we belong to. Maybe meditation's your way. Maybe 
that sits within a, a bigger tradition or a church and other practices. But you follow what your heart is telling you. Only one part is yours. Of course, this could turn out to be very self-centered, except that it's divine love that we're communing with. That's what stops it from being self-centered. Only one is yours. We learn through what happens to us from one moment to the next. We must listen each moment to God in order to become learned in that divine theology which is founded on practice and experience. It's not enough to know about things, about theology which has ideas of God, not they're not true, but as John Main says, we have to verify the truths of faith in our own experience. What does it mean if we're not living it? If it's ideas floating in the air, or in our heads, it's not enough. Ignore what is told to others, listen to what is told to you only. You have your own unique way of responding to God within you, to the spirit within you. But there will be a great commonality about it because we're all children of God. <laughs> Back to that theme of I cannot be anyone but myself. It's just that I try to be. <laughs> In Jesus we have a master to whom we do not sufficiently listen. He speaks to each heart the word of life, the only word, but we do not listen. We want to know what he's saying to others and do not listen to what he is saying to us. Some of you are smiling with all sorts of grins <laughs> of one sort or another. It deserves our attention, <coughs> this divine word, and those who heed it with an open heart and with confidence and courage need fear nothing. But that confidence and courage have to grow from experience. What if I do follow that, which seems a bit... It's only our experience that tells us, when we do follow it, whether that was good or not. It says it's a way of faith. What's faith mean to you? What's faith for you? Trust, belief, trusting, yeah. 
walking walking an unseen path, being faithful. Faith is death and destruction to the senses, he says. (laughs) For they worship creatures. Stop. The scene. Whereas faith worships the divine will of God. Discard idols, and he means that in all sorts of senses, anything that we think is something to go for that's, not, that's less than God. In many forms, there are religious idols and secular idols. Senses to anything that we we to the not not to, no not to us exactly the opposite it's life for us very good to stop me there because I would hate you to go away with that idea <laughs> I didn't nor did he <laughs> it's destruction to the senses so you know he's very clear about this <laughs> can't really miss it can you. Discard idols, and the senses will cry like disappointed children. But faith triumphs, for it can never be estranged from God's will. You know those things, we have a sense of something that we should let go of. We really are not going to. Yeah. Yeah. I think what he's saying is that when we when we stop at the senses and think that's all there is, but being but anything in ordinary life can be a doorway through to the divine. So it's when let let's say um, let's say food, the enjoyment of food. Are we just enjoying food for its own sake, or in it do we find that deeper enjoyment? <coughs> yes, the senses that, that, that attach us only to what's there in time and space, and, and, don't li- and are not allowing them to lead us through to, to what's the source of everything, which is the source of greater joy. Does that make some sense? It's tricky. Yeah. Yes, attachment to the senses. Yes. Yeah. Being content with something which doesn't satisfy. Thinking about the meal, you have the meal and then it's gone. And then you need another one, a better one, (laughs) a more expensive one, a finer one. And you cannot bear it when you only have dry bread and cheese. even though it's perfectly adequate, the dry bread and cheese. (laughs) But that's the sort of sense I think he's trying to... Why can we not be as content with the dry bread and cheese as we can with the fine wine? So he's not saying that we should or shouldn't have the fine wine. (laughs) 
why not? It's a question of whether that is an entry point into that deeper fulfillment and satisfaction that it, that's available for us. And it will only be a deep satisfaction if we're not attached to it. We're not, we're not attached to the sensual pleasure. would say it is. That if through that ordinary everyday thing you sense the divine. Oh yes, yeah, sure. That's what, That's what he's saying. Yeah. Well that's your preference. Yes. But you don't have to be you don't have to be limited by that, he says. Why be limited by that? Why not? refine your attention so that what you're finding in that moment is something deeper, something of God, something of divine significance for you, for your life. In, in the act of drinking it. Yeah. Because he said it's not to do with preferences. You may prefer something, but you may not get what you prefer. Then what are you going to do? Because you've got attached to your like and dislike and that's a limitation. Yeah. Yeah. He is saying that we can grow in our capacity to find in every moment divine communion. That we can grow. It's just really important for me to keep saying that. Saying that we have the capacity to grow in that way. That's going to help us, yeah. That's the way that begins to happen, yeah. But it's not, it's not our work of our will, remember. It's this allowing the divine will to work in us. Yeah. That, of course, also grows, doesn't it, in us? Our, our orientation to that, away from the things which gradually we begin to realize what, what, is, it that, what is it that satisfies us and what is hollow. To start with, we don't see that. But gradually, we begin to realize, do we not, that we're, we're doing things... I mean, why am I doing that? <laughs> yes? Why am I doing that? So those questions begin to arise for us as we begin to tune in more deeply to the divine. Pardon? Where does stillness... Yes, it's in that stillness, I think, as, as the inner stillness begins to arise and we're able to let go of the things that distract us, that we begin to, to do this listening in that he's talking about. Because you can't listen if there's so much stuff going on, desires and desires for other things. So that stillness that gradually can grow in us if we're faithful to our 
practice, we have to practice, then we begin to be able to hear bit by bit. Hear some deeper resonances. Uh, over lunch we were having a discussion of exactly some of those things that have been happening to someone over the years. But sometimes all of a sudden, goodness me, what? <laughs> oh! Someone else I was talking to who suddenly thought, oh, goodness me, why am I doing that? Why am I doing that thing which stirs me up? I don't need to do it anymore. So this is the day-by-day in everyday life way in which it happens. It can happen anywhere. It does happen anywhere. It happens when it happens. In God's good time, you might say. Yes, and where does that come from? (laughs) Right frame of mind. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That would certainly be the way I would describe it, very much so. Yeah. We can, we're, we're usually over-trying, <laughs> as we do in meditation quite often. We over-try for all those reasons that we thought about. Here's a, a writer that will, I think, that, that we, if you're attracted to him, who will be a companion for the rest of your life. <laughs> Ego, or at least the, the transformation of ego, yeah. Ego getting in, in its proper place. So he says um, there's an active and passive practice to this. The active practice of fidelity, faith, faithfulness consists in accomplishing the duties which devolve upon us, whether imposed by the general laws of God and of the church or by the particular state that we may have embraced. So he's really saying, just doing what you have to do. Whatever that is, whatever sort of life you're living, just do what you have to do, fully, wholeheartedly, with attention, Usually when we're doing something, we're not just doing that, right? We're usually thinking about what we could be doing if we weren't doing this, or being annoyed with someone else who ought to be doing it, not us, or the person who, the Mary and Martha story comes to mind, the person who should be helping us, (laughs) or we're feeling awfully proud because we're doing, doing it so well. Or we're planning for the future, or fantasizing about something else, or th- wishing we were somewhat, <laughs> wishing we were somewhere else, or thinking about the 101 other things we should be doing and trying to rush through this as quickly as possible, or feeling bored, or so usually there are a lot of other, or at least a lot of the time, there are a lot of other things going on as well as what we're doing. 
is this not so? Which takes us away from the enjoyment, the potential enjoyment of what we're doing, being present to it. And that being an opening into the peace and joy and love which are the divine promise. So it's that sort of sense. Can we give attention to what we're doing without being constantly distracted by other things going on in our mind or our emotions? Of course, this takes time. This is a lifetime's work. But there are such there are usually moments of delight along the way. I remember in particular a um, <coughs> Uh, a YouTube clip that was made by some students at Washington um, in, I forget the name of the university in Washington, where Father Lawrence was teaching business students to meditate. Thank you, Georgetown. And some of them made YouTube clips. And one young man said that he'd been walking a mile from his residence to the university buildings for two years and implied, as a result of beginning to meditate, for the first time in two years, he had noticed that the road he walked down was lined with beautiful trees. Because he'd spent two years walking down that road without noticing them. Without having this beauty and glory and delight in his life. It's a very simple thing, but this is the way it works, and this is the sort of thing he's talking about. This is ordinary, everyday us. <laughs> These simple things, which we often say, oh, you know, we don't think they matter. And I think Kasad is saying, everything matters in that sense. There's nothing that's not. But what we need is there if we're present to it. And if we gradually begin, if gradually those things which keep us unpresent begin to fall away. And there are practices that we undertake to help that to happen. So the active practice of fidelity consists in accomplishing the duties which devolve upon us. Its passive exercise consists in the loving acceptance of all that God sends us in each moment. So there's an implication <laughs> that as we, we actively try and be in the moment, there'll be a blessing in it. I remember once we lived in Cornwall and we'd established a little community. It was a big project that we'd given our lives to, us, my husband and myself and another couple. And it became clear after some time that it wasn't going to work. And we had to sell up. And that was a pretty devastating conclusion to have to come to. And we had to begin to think about selling. Um, and it didn't sell very easily. Nothing could be done about it until we'd sold up and gone, found somewhere else to go, each couple. And I remember one day thinking, well, Liz, um, you can either spend all your time regretting what's happened and wondering where you're going to go and what's going to happen, or you can be present to, wait to how it is now. Because if you're not present, you won't receive gifts. 
that are in the present moment. So that was a gift to me at that point to realize that I didn't like being where I was at that point. It was difficult. But if I wasn't present, then God couldn't get at me, as it were, put rather more crudely. And it would be a jolly sight better if I, made, if I decided to let God get at me. And it completely changed the way I approached the months that followed. I discovered there were graces every day. But it wasn't my effort. My effort had gone into my practice of meditation and prayer. There's no doubt about that. But what flowed from that flowed in its own time. So he says, during the day, try to keep yourself united to God, either by frequent aspiration toward him or by the simple glance of pure faith or better still, by a certain calm in the depths of your soul and of your whole being. It depends where you are. Maybe you just have to keep on reminding yourself of God, sending up darts of longing love. Keep bringing yourself back. Maybe you get to the stage where, as we did just now, you just come back to that abiding calm. <coughs> that you're already beginning to recognize. <coughs> you do it the way you know how to do it. People who use the Jesus prayer, may well, which is often used continuously during the day, may well start by um, using it to think about God, to bring their thoughts back to God, but gradually it becomes something that um, saves itself and creates a calm in the soul that, that continues. So again, he's not prescribing and saying, you must do this, or you must do it this way, but he's giving you a sense of what's possible. <laughs> that you can find it, help you to find the way that you can uh, tread. To escape the distress caught by, caused by regret for the past, or fear about the future. This is the rule to follow. Leave the past to the infinite mercy of God, future to his good providence. Give the present wholly to his love by being faithful to his grace. Something else you can do. The past gone. Who knows what the future is going to bring? All we have about the future is imagination. It's not reality. And then he says, you know, you're probably not going to be very good at this. <laughs> but it doesn't matter because your intentions are good and God honors those. And I think that all the time about meditation. I've been meditating for a long time, and I'm really bad at it still. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So your intentions count for a whole heap, because you know we're only human. Aye, that's great. 
So he says, it's not about your own powers, your own plans, your own performance, your own success, your own judgment, your own particular works. It's not about conscious effort. It's there. <laughs> good test of, as, as to whether it's in the present moment is that there's a certain peace and tranquility about it, even if it's something difficult. There's a certain underlying sense of rightness or tranquility about it. It's not about acts of piety, external works. Not that we don't need them, but that's not the point. They become idols. And he says, if you have a particular spiritual practice and it's taken you somewhere, and you feel it's right to move on to another one, don't stick with it. It's beginning to discern. And it's not about what you like and what you dislike. It's about what it is that you are to do in the moment. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. If it has to be done, it has to be done. Just do it. <laughs> God knows, too, that you do not know what is good for you, and he makes it his business to provide it, little caring whether you like it or not. <laughs> but disconcerting. And he says, don't read too many books about it. <laughs> Sorry, bookshop. <laughs> he doesn't say don't read, don't, he doesn't say don't, don't read any books about it, but he's trying to say, don't confuse knowing about it with doing it. The theory may help you, but don't let it take the place of. Of course, it, for most of us, it helps to read, all of us. He says, to quench thirst, it is necessary to drink. <laughs> it's that simple. Reading books about it only makes it worse. It just makes us more thirsty when we still haven't got around to drinking. <laughs> if a book makes you thirsty and you go and drink, fantastic. <laughs> All we need to know is how to recognize his will in the present moment. Theories and studies without regard for the refreshing virtue of God's order are merely dead letters, emptying the heart by filling the mind. That's what he means. Be careful not to empty the heart by filling the mind. The heart, the whole person, the core of our being, that which makes connection with God, that's what it's about. So there are some cautions. He's never saying don't read, just be careful. Begin to work out what you're reading for, how you're reading. So finally in this section. No sooner do we form our own ideas or notions of piety or means to perfection, he's talking to nuns in particular here, or whatever designs we may have or advice we may take, God disconcerts all our plans and instead permits us to find in them only confusion, trouble, vanity, and folly. So if you come up with your own plans and grand ideas and think you've got it all taped, it'll be the greatest grace of all when you end up in confusion, when you're thrown off course because it's the wrong course. So confusion is not a bad thing necessarily. 
It may be just something that's pushing us somewhere else where we need to be. Doubts can be the same. Shifts in our confusion about our ideas of God as they change. Ah. You don't till you've gone through it. We know with hindsight. That's what he's saying. You can't know in advance, otherwise it would be your will. Yeah, you do. You do. Sometimes you know at the time because there's a sense, there's an underlying sense that this is something that has to be. And increasingly, I think there's often an underlying sense that gets deeper, that this is difficult, but it has to be. But you don't know the outcome. That's the nature of faith that a step has to be taken before you know the outcome. And I think some of you understand that in your experience, don't you? That was Mary. And it is so for us. And afterwards, you look back and you think, oh, it had to be that way. But we don't like it at the time. Of course we don't like it. We're human. This, it's happening to us and we have to be able to sit with it as it were to be in that moment and then there's clarity that comes from that confusion oh, we think, oh goodness me it's all worth it now I understand ah and the smile arises again and that's how we learn to trust how trust deepens. That we've been through it and it's full of blessings. We think, okay, this is this is a trustworthy path. And everyone who's travelled the path before has said something similar. But sometimes you do feel like getting your money back. You're absolutely right. I'm not going there, this is ridiculous. I'm not. If this is God, as St. Teresa said when she was off to found a new um, monastery and the journey was dreadful and the carriage tipped up and they're all out in the mud. And she said, she said to God, I'm not surprised you haven't got many friends if this is the way you treat them. <laughs> <laughs> But he says, God always fills with blessings a heart that is nourished neither by the world nor by fantasy, but by him alone. That's how you know, is the blessings that follow. I want to pick up now quite specifically that theme of the tough times and the suffering times that often we think, to start with, they cannot be anything to do with God. I'll give you some. Oops! I'll give you some quotes to look at in your on, in your groups again. But, but let me key us into this by. I'm going to give you my sense of the way our culture, in general, tends to regard. I think the tendency in our time in our culture is to assume that to be happy and to be content, life has to be going well. 
good things have to be happening all the time. And if suffering comes our way, it's bound to be a diminishment of life. It's bound to make us miserable. It's bound to rob our life of meaning. And if that's the case, then we should do everything we can to avoid suffering or to eradicate it from life. So perhaps if we threw a lot more money, let's say at the health service, and maybe we should, I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I'm just following a line of thought, Perhaps if we put enough money into, let's say, our health service, we could eradicate all disease and illness. Let's say if we worked even harder at safety, health and safety at work, um, all sorts of other strategies and road safety, we could eliminate all accidents. Um, so we could eliminate all of that unhappiness and misery and meaninglessness and life would seem more worthwhile and more satisfying. And maybe um, if things go wrong, well, we should certainly find out who was responsible and make them pay for it in some way so that it doesn't happen again. And um, if we're rich enough, maybe we can insure against it and um, there certainly ought to be compensation. And if people say unpleasant things to each other, well, maybe there should be a law against that too, um, which there is, of course. And I'm not saying that any of those things are not things we ought to be doing. Of course we ought to be. But I'm putting a question mark against whether or not it's inevitable that suffering and hardship make us miserable and rob meaning from life. And I'm putting a question mark whether it's actually ever or could ever be possible to eliminate suffering. I don't think it can be possible to eliminate suffering, however much money we threw at it. Let me stress again, I'm not saying you shouldn't be trying to. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Our love for each other demands that. And our growing love, the more, we, the more we're connecting to the love of God, the more that love is shown between us. But we cannot prevent death. We cannot prevent grief. and the suffering of grief. We all will die. I know in the United States it is possible, it's actually possible, in one or two facilities to freeze your body in a special freezing technique so that eventually when they can solve your problem you can be brought back again. But it has to be lunacy. It's a denial, isn't it, of something that we don't want to face. <laughs> but this is inevitable. It's inevitable that we're going to upset each other because we're human. 
we should try to eliminate accidents, but accidents will happen. And some illnesses will kill children at a young age and people before their time, as we say, whatever that might mean. People will end up disabled or will be blind at the end of their life. We can never completely prevent that. It's part of life. And I wonder what your experience is in your own times of suffering. I've come across people for whom their suffering has blighted their life forever. It's left them smaller, miserable, bitter. And I've met people for whom it's transformed their life in quite different ways. It's expanded their heart, it's grown their compassion. You ever hear those programs on the telly or the radio when someone talks about, specifically about, terrible things that have happened in their life? Almost like a dark night of the soul. Like a dark night of the soul. Was it, who was it? Did he play James Bond, one of the, one of the great actors of, of stage and screen? It wasn't Roger Moore, someone or other, anyway. And he had an accident and he ended up wheelchair bound. Superman. Superman. How interesting that it was Superman. And then he got a role where he had the book, I think it was based on that Hitchcock film, a remake, where he's actually in a Ah, well, I remember him telling his story and he said, actually, this disablement and being this wheelchair has been the greatest blessing of my life. It's completely changed the way I see life and what the values of life are for me. And that's a story I hear again and again. Okay, so it's made you into a better person. That's interesting, isn't it? And I, I guess some of you are calling to mind some of your own tough times of one sort or another. So there's nothing to say that it's bound to do that, but in, in the, all of the great writers in the spiritual traditions have said, suffering is part of life, and it has meaning, or it can have meaning, if we're given the grace to find a way to approach it. So inevitably, Jean-Pierre Cossard talks about that, and it comes up again and again and again in his letters of direction. Because the most tough times in the spiritual life, and if you're in the religious life, that must be particularly difficult, is this question of suffering. Where is God? The dark night. Is this it? Is this what I've committed my life to? Because usually in the back of the mind, it's not what we're hoping for. <laughs> we're hoping for a God who will keep things nice and smooth for us. So that no trouble will come into our life. It's not the story of Jesus that we have, but we still think that usually. So let's see what um, he has to say. I 
getting stuck to myself on the chair. I, just, I think there may not be enough there. read them through whilst you read them and if it helps just oh you're not there yet sorry started before we're ready sorry. I'll wait just to make sure they all come along to the end okay thanks so as last time just notice anything in particular that strikes you that you would want to reflect on a bit more in a small group. So we'll start off with an image. When you throw a very dry piece of wood that will burn easily on the fire, the flame seizes it at once and consumes it quietly and noiselessly. But if you throw green wood on the fire, the flame does not affect it except for a moment and then the heat of the fire, acting on the green wet wood, makes it exude moisture and emit sighing sounds and twists and turns it in a hundred different ways with great noise until it, has until it has been made dry enough for the flame to take hold of it. Then the flame consumes it without effort or noise, but quietly. This is an image of the action of divine love on souls that are still full of imperfections and the inclinations of self-love. They must be purified, refined, and cleared away. And this cannot be achieved without trouble and suffering. Look upon yourself, then, as this green wood acted on by divine love before it is able to enkindle it and to consume it with its flames. So this sense of the possibility of the soul being a fire or a flame God is a, quite a common one through the centuries, that we can be a fire with God, a glow with God. So that's the sort of imagery he's picking up. You clearly perceive, this is number two, you clearly perceive that your fears are nothing but idle imaginations. Therefore, if God does not wish you to be entirely delivered from them, you have nothing to do but drop them like stone into the water. Take no more notice of them than flies that pass backwards and forwards, buzzing in your ears. Be careful to drop vain and useless thoughts directly you are conscious of them, but quietly, without effort or violence. So the person there is in the grip of fear and has a sense that they don't have real substance. You know how with, with fear, it, it sort of magnifies. The more we think about it, the bigger it grows. So what do you do when they won't go away? Number three, a more general one. What can one do? when one is conducted through an unknown country at night across fields where there are no tracks, tracks by a guide who follows his own ideas without revealing his plans. That's God. 
misguiding you. <laughs> but abandon oneself to his care. Or run in the other direction. <laughs> or try and find a foothold. All the other things we try to do. But abandon oneself to his care. That's trust, isn't it? Number four. God directs our lives from these shadows so that when the senses are scared, faith, taking everything in good part and for the best, is full of courage and confidence. To live by faith, then, is to live in joy, confidence and certainty and trust in all there is to do and suffer each moment as ordained by God. However mysterious it may seem, it is in order to awaken and maintain this living faith that God drags the soul through tumultuous floods of so much suffering, trouble, perplexity, weariness and ruin. For faith is needed to discover in all this God and that divine life which can neither be seen nor felt but in some mysterious way unmistakably reveals itself. And finally, all that books and directors can say may be reduced to this one word, fiat, fiat, let it be, at all times and for everything. Tobit in his blindness, Job on his dunghill, and so many other saints prostrate on beds of suffering did no more than this. So, re-establish your little groups or different groups and dig into that see, and, and see how this relates to your own experience as well. That's really key and see what comes out of it. And uh, we'll gather up now as we did before any particular thoughts or insights that you want to share. Uh, it, it isn't particularly easy to hear across the room. So if you're going to speak, would you mind standing up and speaking out quite well so that everyone can hear? Take courage. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Or did it chime with you at all? Or was it on another planet? Or where was it? The only thing I'd say is that it's all about spiritual pain, perhaps. It's got nothing, it seems to me, to do with physical pain. Okay, I think he would disagree. He is including. Sorry? I think he would disagree. He would, he would be including physical suffering. If he would disagree, there's not much point in continuing the discussion, is there? Because I think to I would think that physical suffering is so debilitating. But the only way you can come to terms with it is retrospectively. If it's a terminal disease, well, who knows what happens in the retrospective. Has anyone got any experience they want to put into that? Yeah, I've Georgie. I've been for years in hospice, so I've seen a lot of people take And it varies. Yeah, but the number of times I saw real love I'm not denying it, particularly people of faith. Yeah, well, yes, and this wasn't a discussion that took place necessarily. 
nothing inevitable about what he's saying. He's saying that as human beings there is this potential, the mystery of why it seems to come to some of us and not to others. I have no idea how to respond to it. Could you speak? Other thoughts, insights, reflections you want to make? really and in, in a sense it's it's not very helpful to get into a, a sort of um, an analysis of which sort of pain and suffering is no I know you didn't but yeah um, the suffering that comes is the question posed here is and, and why I hope you would look at it in the light of your own experience because that's what teaches us is, is it always meaningless? Because he's suggesting that it doesn't necessarily have to be the case. And I think some of you are uh, saying that in your own experience, it, it hasn't always been the case. And he's also suggesting that we're not going to grow spiritually without it, without a degree of it. Because we will just stay where we are. Yes, indeed. 
He's not suggesting that you, I don't think that you're, you're likely to go through it with complete equanimity. <laughs> Although some people do. He's not suggesting any pattern to it. He's not suggesting how it ought to be. <laughs> He's saying you have to be present to what is. So acceptance is certainly, isn't it, a, is, a, a, is always part of that, the seeing the reality of it and learning to accept it as a prelude to finding something else in it or some other blessing in it or a, way, a different way through it. And you're right, it's, it's almost, it's usually, although not always, in hindsight, sometimes there are flashes of recognition in the middle of it, if that's what we need. Um, but in hindsight, we usually look back and think, oh, goodness me, if this sort of process is working, that's changed me. I think it's okay to be angry with God during these periods of suffering, to give up our normal precepts of life, whether this means we stop praying, stop going to church, stop giving, stop giving to charity. Only just the patience to know that eventually we'll get through it. Okay. It is enough, yeah. Thank you. Georgie. Um, it would be our discussion by saying that life is fair and every child knows that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, so there's no way we can abolish injustice and we will get it at some point, whether it's in personal suffering or something um, somebody we love very dearly. Um, but without it, we're not holding it. that quote from Etty at the beginning, Etty Hillerson, sorry, I always call her Etty because she feels a bit like a friend. My red and yellow roses are now fully open. Many say, how can you still think of flowers in this hell that's going on? And she says, they are just as real as all the misery I witness each day. So the reality of life that she's come to see is that people can do unbelievably vile things to each other. But at the same time, the red and yellow roses bloom. And you don't have to deny one to appreciate or be fully involved in the other, which is what we often do. The dark colors all possibility, blots out all possibility of beauty. Or vice versa. You know, we concentrate on the present moment and block out the darkness. And she discovered on a hard path that it was actually possible to appreciate both as aspects of reality. And to come to the conclusion for herself that in this appalling situation, the only thing she could do in the ordinariness of her life and her state of life, as it were, she wasn't in government, she was just living her own private life. The only thing that she could do, and therefore the thing she must do, was to not add any more hate 
to the situation. But to add love. It's a different way that she had discovered or of being in a world which is full of hate. In this case, we're talking about the Nazi Holocaust. Different sort of suffering. But there, there is this deep question going on, isn't there? How, how is it possible for us to be human and to find the divine in these dark situations? And does our spiritual practice over time help us? And in helping us, does it help us to help others? If we've gradually come to find those ways of connecting with the divine in everything that crosses our path. And this is, as I, let me say it again, it's a long path. And it's not one that we undertake of our own. Most of you say, well, I found myself doing this, or I heard this, or I discovered when I met this person again, I didn't feel those awful emotions I felt last time. Something had happened, changed it. It, um, it occurs to me that even in a situation where there is great suffering, if a person wants to reject the Lord, it doesn't remove the situation. They still remain as they are, and they still have to do something to live in that situation. So for me, it's better to, to, to try. And each of us have to make a very personal fit, because if this is where it's so personal, yeah. the lives are so individual, then I have to, as a person, decide am I going to try to go deeper in order to understand and cope with what has come my way. But whatever has come my way is not going to stop being present in my life, regardless of how I, whether I'm committed to it, or whether I try and apply it basically. Mm. The fact that we want mentally to, and psychologically to deny it doesn't stop it from being real. Yeah. Which is sort of its point. <laughs> if it's real, then it has to be the doorway into the ultimately real. Or it can be. We've dipped into some big questions, especially in this last session, haven't we? And um, they're questions that I think travel with us through life and come to the fore at particular times when we can't make sense of this. Well, we can't say anything about God, but it's difficult for us not to want to put into words our experience. So in, in, in that case, his sense, I would certainly accord with his sense that somehow or other um, those tumults that, he's, that, he, that I've been through, um, it seems to me, in retrospect, that I would not have otherwise found that new way of living without it. 
i.e. it has not been meaningless. Good, okay, well let's finish there. Let me, um, let's end on a, a note of blessing. The quote I mentioned previously, God always fills with blessings a heart that is nourished neither by the world nor by fantasy, but by him alone. But by him alone. Well, I'm going to say let's finish with it, but let's finish with this one. Because he wants you to be sure that the blessings that come to you are not just for you. That they begin to spread. Be assured, the liberty of God's children will one day be yours. There's your hope. Then you will be able to add to the pleasure of others by reflecting exteriorly that abounding peace and joy which is caused in the soul by the pure love of God and of your neighbor. So people will sense something in you, as you do in people. There's something, something of peace, something of joy, something of love that there is about them that's infectious somehow. You know, it's, you see, the person themselves, you're not conscious of it. They're just being themselves, doing their ordinary things. But other people in their presence sense something else. This deeper, this eternal, the divine, coming, radiating, you might say. What word shall we use? So it cannot but be spreading. Sure, I'll finish with that one. Then you will be able to resume your light-heartedness and gaiety. For both will be reformed and spiritualized by the holy operation of grace. So you'll even be even more light-hearted and gay. Can't say that anymore. In the beginning, however, oh no, that, that, let's just stop there. So the blessing, God always fills with blessings a heart that is nourished neither by the world nor by fantasy, but by him alone.